This is episode number 38 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. If you've been paying attention to tech-related news, you might have heard COBOL being thrown around a lot. So if you're not familiar, COBOL is actually a programming language that has been around for quite some time. The topic of this particular episode is just that. What is COBOL? Why is it suddenly in demand? And how do you actually develop or what do you develop it for? So in this particular podcast episode, I have guest Liz Joseph from IBM, and we talk about mainframes and COBOL development and all of the great things that you can do with it and why it's still such a relevant technology. With that said, enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Elizabeth Joseph, and we're going to be talking about COBOL. So before we get into the core material of this particular episode, I want to give Elizabeth a chance to introduce herself. So how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So do you go by Elizabeth or Liz? Uh, it could go either way. You can call me Liz. All right, perfect. I'll, I'll start calling you Liz. Um, so why don't you tell us a little about yourself? What do you what are some of your hobbies? Uh, so I, I, I wish I could say I had super interesting hobbies. Um, I, I play with computers a lot. So it turns out that my job and my hobbies like run together a lot. Um, I recently bought like a, I did like a, a Minecraft um, Kickstarter. So that's like a little digital assistant, like a little box. It's kind of like an Alexa, but everything's open source. So the hardware's open source, software's open source. So I'm playing around with that a little bit. Um, I got my Raspberry Pi 4 running. So a lot of little computer projects in my free time. <laughs> In regards to the Kickstarter, is this a project that you are that you've started and collected funding on, or just something that you've backed? I'm just a backer. Got it. And uh, so, so you're a big Minecraft fan? Uh, no. So it's my actually it's called Mycroft. Yeah, Mycroft. Oh, all right. Yeah. I totally misheard that. Yeah. Then, <laughs> yeah, very similar naming. So what is that then? Uh, so it's it, if you think of like a, a like an Alexa. Um, so you, you know, you ask it questions and it gives you answers, searches the web, but that is connected to Amazon. This is a fully open source project. So they have open source the hardware and they're putting that together. They open source the software. It's all developed in the community. So, um, it's like an open source version. So in theory, it's going to be a lot more secure. So do you get to direct it at, at uh, your own endpoints or something, or how does that work? Exactly. Yeah. So you can hook it into your home automation system, which I don't have yet, but we're working on. <laughs> so someday I'm hoping to be able to, you know, turn on the lights with a voice command that doesn't, you know, go off to Amazon or Google or something. Awesome. Are you using the, the new Raspberry Pi 4? I, I heard, uh, what, like two days ago, they have an eight gigabyte one that just came out, right? Oh, I know, right? So I got the four gig version. Um, right now, it's... it's <laughs> okay. So I'm a big zoo fan. I like sure. animals. So right now it is like connected to this little, little cheapo monitor that I bought. And it has like the elephant webcam running like all day <laughs> from the Oakland Zoo. <laughs> Got it. Is it like the Twitch stream or something or? Yeah, they, they have they have a, a stream on their website. So I log in to see the different animals. So that's essentially what the thing is doing yeah. right now. Because I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do with my Raspberry Pi at the moment. But animals. <laughs> so you're totally not uh, utilizing it in its full uh, feature set then. Not at all. It's it's a little embarrassing, honestly. <laughs> no worries. I think you could probably get away with a Raspberry Pi Zero to do that, right? Uh, yeah. So that that I actually have one. Um, I, I have a place in Philadelphia. We, my family, like a family house, um, and I have one set up there. Actually, awesome. that's also my VPN gateway to that house. So. Nice. <laughs> 
So that's pretty awesome. So uh, in regards to what you do uh, during the day, do you want to share uh, a little bit about that? Yeah. So by way of like a super condensed like biography, um, I'm a Linux sysadmin by training. Um, so I, I've spent a lot of time working on distributed systems and cloud systems and containers and like all kinds of infrastructure work. So I spent about 15 years doing that. Um, and then I got a call from IBM while I was on a job search and they said, Hey, do you want to come work on mainframes? I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> or, you know, do you have the right person? Like, you know, my background is distributed systems. I work on clouds. I've never touched, I've never even seen a mainframe. And they were like, no, that's exactly the kind of experience we want. Because what we're looking for is a developer advocate who can go out and talk to Linux admins and can talk to developers and can work in the open source communities that I've, I've been working in in the past several years. And we want someone with that background so you can like, show IBM how our messaging can be improved for that sort of community and how to really talk to people like you. And I was like, actually, that sounds kind of awesome. <laughs> so uh, while I was interviewing, I was digging into, there's a bunch of open source projects around the mainframe these days, and there's all kinds of um, interesting work being done to modernize the mainframe. So you can use like Jenkins and Git and all kinds of modern languages against the mainframe. And I had no idea. So I was like, this is actually sounding pretty awesome. So I joined the team back in April of last year. So I've been working with IBM for about a year on mainframes. So, um, and, and excuse me if, if I'm very not knowledgeable at all about this, but <laughs> um, I, since I don't know too much about sysadmin stuff, uh, mm -hmm. what exactly does it mean uh, when people say mainframe nowadays? Or what does that entail versus just standard sysadmin work? Yeah, that's a good question. So it, it's funny because when I when I was first, I, I honestly didn't know what a mainframe was. Like I was like, it seemed it's a big computer. <laughs> yeah, that's my um, interpretation of it. Yeah, but it, it turns out it, the, the difference is a lot bigger than that. Um, so when you think about even like when you're developing on a, on a normal server or running a normal server, like I say normal server, but, you know, a standard x86 machine, um, it has you log into it through SSH. You have a file system where you put files, you link to libraries that are on that file system, and you can explore the file system just by running a few shell commands. And so that's how you navigate a Linux-based x86 machine. Um, of course, Windows, BSD, whatever, it's all, it's all pretty similar. They're all machines that you can, you can poke around, and it's, it's very um, file system-based. Um, a mainframe, by contrast, first of all, it does not have storage. So storage is on a separate machine. So the mainframe itself is just processor and memory, and then a bunch of specialized cards that do things like they they do cryptography on the special cards. They do um, like I/O processing, so it makes like I/O once you get to the storage much faster. Um, and then the way you interact with a traditional mainframe running an operating system like ZOS is you are essentially working with databases all day long. So the reason mainframes were invented was because companies and organizations, governments were processing data. And so everything is data oriented. So when you interact with the mainframe, you're interacting with data sets and you're doing that through an interface that really only knows about data. So the programs that you write against it are manipulating data and they're doing output of data and they're doing processing and parsing of data. Um, whereas on a Linux machine in on x86, it's not really, I mean, 
everyone is serving data today, right? But they're doing it for different reasons than the mainframe might. So the mainframe is processing records. A Linux machine is probably hosting a website or a mail server. Um, and so that's the ZOS side of the mainframe. Um, I was brought on primarily to work on the Linux side because Linux runs on the mainframe these days. Um, IBM has had like a, a Linux-only mainframe for about five years, and you can also run Linux alongside ZOS on a traditional mainframe. So when you're running Linux on the mainframe, it actually runs a lot like an x86 server. So you have a file system and everything. But the traditional mainframe is all about data. So, so then the gap now uh, in the modern ma mainframe world is that uh, it's just, would you say, like a, a beefier uh, server now <laughs> because it, it operates on Linux now? Yeah, so that, that's the funny thing because, you know, it, it turns out it's just a really big server. And, you know, the storage is still offsite. And, um, you know, th those things are still the same, but there, it, it brings a couple of interesting things that are really interesting for some customers. So I, I mentioned that you can have like special cards that do cryptography. Yep. So on every CPU, there's a crypto coprocessor. So when you, if you want to like encrypt everything, like you want to encrypt everything on your file system using DM crypt, just in the kernel, you want to use IPsec for everything. You want to use open SSL for everything. You can do that. And the open source projects themselves have built in support for the mainframe. So you compile your open SSL with the right flags and then it has mainframe support. So instead of going to your general processor to do all the cryptography, it goes to that crypto coprocessor on the CPU, which means you can encrypt everything and it won't take away from any of your general workloads, which is like super cool. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty cool. Um, is it, is it similar to like, I mean, I, again, this is a space that I know very little about. Um, mm -hmm. so you can go ahead and, and call me out if I'm wrong on anything. Uh, is it like, uh, what is it, TPM for a lot of, uh, modern, uh, desktops that, that, that you can build now? Yeah. So it, it's, it's a bit different than that. Um, because TPM is more of a security feature. Got it. Um, uh, but that, that leads me into another thing. There's also something called an HSM. Got it. The hardware security module. And that's um, generally where you would um, that that the hardware security mo modules essentially its job is to keep cryptographic secrets and to keep your system secure. Yeah. So on the mainframe, the HSM is built into a Crypto Express card, so that's one of your um, PCI cards that's in the mainframe as well. And the one on the mainframe is like got like the highest uh, rating as far as like super HSMs go. <laughs> so yeah, <clears throat> they're um, it's very good. It's totally tamper resistant. Like if you, if you, if it gets too hot or too cold or whatever, it just zeroes out the keys. Like if you try to take the cover off, it zeroes out the keys. Like there's no way to mess with this thing. So one of the really cool things that IBM has done is they um, put this into the cloud. So in IBM cloud, you can actually have access to one of these HSMs. So even if you have nothing to do with the mainframe at all, you can still store your crypto keys in IBM cloud using one of these machines. Um, and now naturally people would probably be using other mainframe stuff if they even know about this, but it was pretty cool when I learned we made this accessible, like as a service and yeah, well, we don't advertise cool. it like that. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. Hey, secretly there's a mainframe in IBM cloud, like a bunch of them. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So now that, I mean, now that we have some background on, on what you've been up to and mainframe stuff, which uh, is totally new to me, even though it's been around <laughs> forever. Um, what what can you tell me about how COBOL fits into this? Maybe maybe we take a step back and we discuss what COBOL is uh, to the to the new users of it. 
Right. So I sort of briefly touched upon like why mainframes were invented back in the 60s. Um, and if we, if we sort of look back at then, like what companies and what organizations, what governments, what type of place was using computers? And it turns out like people weren't creating websites. We weren't sharing photos. We didn't have an internet. <laughs> um, what people needed for, and, and even going back to like the dawn of computing in the 1800s, the first thing you can call a computer was used for the U.S. census. So it's really organizations who are dealing with data, whether you're counting people or counting records or counting like employees or um, you're tracking airlines and airplanes flying through the sky. It's just everything that's really data focused and would be really hard to do like on paper and, and keep organized and, and keep relevant. Um, so everything's super data focused. So in the late 1950s, uh, a group got together and they're like, listen, we have a bunch of different programming languages to handle this data, but it's really hard because they're not portable. So the computers were kind of custom built then, the code was custom built, but they were like, listen, we need something that's going to be, that we can all use. So that's that's where COBOL got its start. So COBOL is short, well, it's it's an it's a acronym for uh, uh, common business language. There's an O in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. I I use plenty of languages, and I have no idea what the what the yeah. letters stand for. Yeah, but it, anyway, it's 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 for it's built for businesses. So like, and, and data processing. So that was that was kind of thing. And additionally, they didn't want it to be hard to read. So this is in the days of like assembler. And if you've ever looked at assembler code, it's really hard to read. Yeah. Um, and there was like still ones and zeros around at this time. Like, <laughs> like this is really early computing time in the 1950s. So what they wanted with COBOL was something that's also easy to read. So easy to read, transferable, and everyone's going to be using it. That is COBOL. So does COBOL and predate uh, C? Yes. So C, um, the first release of C was in 1972, and the first release of COBOL was 1959. So wow. they're only about 13 years apart, um, which it, it, it's hilarious to me when I, so a couple months ago, there were a bunch of articles about COBOL, and they're like, oh, we're using the 60-year-old language. And it, I had to laugh because I'm like, you know, C is like 45 years old, and yeah. it runs your, your phone. Like... <laughs> We're using a lot of really old languages. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then if, if you were to kind of describe COBOL in terms of um, for people, for the listeners who are, are using much uh, more recent languages, mm -hmm. what would you say that it's most similar to? Is it very unique in its own? It's, it's very unique, um, partially because it was built to be human readable. Um, and if you if you actually look at a COBOL program, you'll see what I mean, because you can actually like it is legit human readable. It's not like Python, which is human readable. Like it actually, you can read it. It has, it's like based on words. Um, and also it's, it's, it's again, like I'm coming back to like the data stuff, like the data focus yeah. is that a COBOL program is broken up to, into different components. So first you're setting up your environment, then you're calling out your data sets and you're very specifically crafting your program to around a specific data set and a specific amount of data. And so each little section, I think there's like four or five sections of a COBOL program, like they're each working. And then finally you get to actually processing the data, um, which is very different than like a language where you're learning the syntax of it and then it's doing things. This again is very like, I am about to work on data. Here is my data. Here is what I want to do. And here is my environment. Now is, is COBOL an interpreted language? 
Uh, no, it's compiled. Got it. And uh, I assume, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong again, um, are people only compiling it to uh, server architectures or is it something that could be compiled uh, to be used on, say, the Raspberry Pi? <laughs> so that's a good question. Um, one of the things about COBOL is because it is like it, the history of COBOL is so integrated with the mainframe. So of course the first mainframe didn't come out until the late sixties. So COBOL was around before the mainframe and there were other computers that IBM and others came out with before then. But once the mainframe came out, like the mainframe and COBOL were very much tied together. And so a lot of the code that you're going to find today is running on the mainframe. And that matters because as I said, the mainframe runs on a different operating system. So it uses ZOS. And that means there's a lot of like hooks inside of ZOS that COBOL itself uses. So when you look at a COBOL code on a mainframe, it's going to be very specific to the environment. So it's using um, certain hooks into the mainframe software. It's connecting into the operating system. It's digging really into the guts of the software on the mainframe. And so you can't just take that and move it to a different environment because you're not going to have those touch points and you're not going to be able to manipulate data in the same way. So you can't really move code um, without an entire refactor, um, but you can write original code on a new machine. So um, a lot of the COBOL that Enterprise uses, it's, um, it's a proprietary co COBOL implementation, but there is also things like GNU COBOL, uh, which is an open source project, and they're all based on the same standard. But GNU COBOL, obviously it's free, and you can run it pretty much anywhere. So that would be the COBOL that you could run on your Raspberry Pi. So if I if I learned GNU COBOL versus mm -hmm. the enterprise version, mm -hmm. uh, would I be learning the same language, or is there like uh, subtle differences between the two that um, that you'd have to account for? So what we like to say is like there are different dialects of the same language. So it's all COBOL, but there are different implementations. So the implementations are based on the COBOL standard. Um, which is refreshed every few years. Uh, the last standard was in 2014, and I'm pretty sure they're working on one for 2020. Um, and so once the standard is developed, then the different versions of COBOL are, are created on top of that. So GNU COBOL adheres to the 2014 standard. Um, the one that I'm familiar with, the uh, Enterprise COBOL for ZOS, that one is on the 2014 standard. And then from there, if, if you learn one, um, it's, 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 it's not hard to move to a different one. Um, you may slip up sometimes because you're using commands that are not available in one or the other. Um, but again, like these are very tied to their environment. So in the one for ZOS, it's going to have like a lot of hooks into like the ZOS stuff. Um, in GNU COBOL, it's going to be less specific to the environment because that version of COBOL can run in more places. Got it. So, so I guess let me let me ask some questions now too since you are saying that cobol is mostly a data driven language and it existed uh, far before the internet uh, was popular uh, does that mean that people who are using cobol right now on mainframes they are dialed in directly to that mainframe or are they able to access it over the internet how does that work so the way it typically works is that the mainframe is still like in your data center behind a bunch of security. Um, sometimes we, there, there's actually a, a guy you can find on Twitter. Um, he, he used to run a script that would find mainframes out in the wild. And you can find that by like trying to log into them. It's like war game style, right? That's you're, scary. <laughs> you're like out on the internet, like all, all you get is a login prompt. And then they're like, oh, you should really lock that down. Cause they're not, I mean, they're crazy secure, but like 
you have to do the work to secure them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, typically they're not sitting right on the internet. Typically they're the back end. So um, the way they're interacted with like on, on the internet. So one of the things we've heard about in the past couple months is with the unemployment claims increasing that the, yeah. the, the load has been um, tricky to handle. So what happens in those cases is the mainframe sitting on the back end and then there's some sort of front end um, that is actually handling the processing of the results. Um, and so when people say, oh, it's running on this old thing, it's broken, like the most important thing is you dig down and figure out what the problem is because it's probably not the old code and it's probably not the mainframe. It's probably the front end that's overloaded um, or something in between because the front end then talks to the mainframe. Um, so one of the things my one of my colleagues, Matt, um, was working on recently um, for, for one, of the, one of our customers was he uh, had some COBOL code that um, parses some JSON that came from the web front end. And I was like, that is so cool because COBOL knows JSON. <laughs> and that's that's sort of how this integration piece happens is like we're teaching COBOL new things all the time. Um, and actually, I think the we, we continuously deliver um, the, the IBM version of COBOL these days. Like if you get a subscription to it, like you get new patches every couple of months. So COBOL might have been around for a long time, but it's it's being updated all the time. So it can interact with modern web frameworks and things that it needs to do. Sure. So then it's it's sitting just as on the back end, kind of like um, maybe a Node.js application or Java or things like that. And then these these front end React or Angular or whatever you want to have it uh, is just it's just interacting with it through an API, right? Yep. Yep. So when it comes to I want to I want to touch base on more of the the unemployment stuff that you brought up uh, because that is kind of where the the whole thought process behind this particular episode came about because I didn't realize there was such a, a huge demand for for Cobalt developers right now. <laughs> um, so. What what does that look like? I mean, are are people actively learning and and uh, building new COBOL applications, or are they a legacy? Or maybe you want to talk about that. So the the really interesting thing about walking into a main mainframe shop today is that people who write COBOL like they're either like baby boomers or the generation after millennials. What is that? I have no idea. Gen I'm a millennial. I don't, yeah, me too. But the one after me, like Gen Z, yeah. I guess, the ones who are graduating college right now. So it mainframe development and COBOL stuff pretty much skipped Gen X and millennials. Like there's hardly any of us in the industry. But there was a realization at some point <laughs> by IBM and others um, that the everyone writing COBOL was older and they started retiring. Um, and so then there started being this huge push a few years ago to get back into the universities and start teaching COBOL. So you now have a bunch of college grads who are super stoked about the mainframe and writing COBOL, and they're the ones, you know, entering the workforce. So you look into these companies and suddenly you have like some people who are like in their 50s and then you have 22 year olds. And that is what the workforce looks like in a mainframe shop typically today. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. So do you think that uh, one day uh, I'm going to have to go from learn, uh, going from Golang and stuff like that to learning COBOL to keep up? <laughs> um, maybe, but um, actually Golang specifically, we're, we're, that is actually supported on ZOS these days. Awesome. Um, so it's, and it, it's, 
or, or we're working on it. I don't know. There's something that's happening there. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. But I mean, so, but, but I mean, the thing with COBOL is since it's very specific to what it does, it's actually yeah. still really good at what it does. And one of the things that these iterations of the language has done over the years is made the system a lot faster. So if you recompile code from the 1980s on a modern compiler for COBOL, you get crazy speed improvements. Now, it's not going to be a seamless process. There's usually refactoring that has to be done to, to put it on the modern compiler. Um, but it ends up being really super fast. Um, and so COBOL is still really good at what it does. And it makes sense for a lot of companies to continue to develop in COBOL if they can find the talent. Interesting. So so there there is a refactor involved, so it's not um, backwards compatible then? So it, it's complicated. Like in, in on, if we were, you know, Technically it is, <laughs> but in reality, there's like small little differences. Um, but, and, and, but the compiled code itself, yeah. that's going to be like, that can run on any mainframe. Like that actually is backwards compatible to like the 1960s. Yeah. It's a compiled, uh, compiled language. Yeah. But if you take the uncompiled code, like you, if you're using a newer compiler, you may need to change a few things, which is the, it's, that's true for any code really. Like even C code written a long time ago, if you put it on a modern C compiler, it's probably going to have issues because you know, things were deprecated or yeah. removed from the language or added or whatnot. So this is the same story with COBOL. Yeah, totally understand. Um, so maybe, and I guess this might be more speculation than anything or opinion, um, but are you, do you think it's actually cheaper to train these new engineers out of, out of uh, college with COBOL rather than say converting it to a different, more modern technology? Uh, it's definitely good for the mainframe, but I'm just curious to know if if something might be better nowadays to replace it, something more, I don't know the term, but uh, we'll go with that. <laughs> so obviously I work for IBM <laughs> and yeah. it's kind of my job to tell you that it's better this way. But the, the thing I'm going to point out um, is that one, I believe that. And two, it's it's really the, the marriage of, of COBOL and the mainframe um, that is important to think about here because the mainframe itself, like mainframes don't go down like we say they have five nines of availability um actually it's like seven nines and in practicality the machines really never go down like there's redundant everything um they are tested to withstand earthquakes um there's like a video on youtube of one of the mainframes just being shaken at one of our test facilities in texas and it's it's fun to watch because you're like oh my gosh what are you doing to that poor computer <laughs> but it, it's designed to withstand natural disasters and, and even things like that and just general data center issues. Is this because the data exists elsewhere and not on the frame, mainframe itself? Um, no, I mean, it's just making sure that the machine just keeps running. Um, Got it. So they want to make sure, yeah, and, that, and, 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 and you know, it's attached to your data store and so that everything is safe. Um, so the mainframe doesn't go down. And then writing code that is specific to interacting with data sets, um, it's going to be fast and it's going to be reliable and you're not going to lose your data. Um, it's also going to be super secure because mainframes were pretty much built around the built around security models. So if you follow the directions, your mainframe is going to be crazy secure. And you're and also with all like the cryptography stuff built into it, you can encrypt everything. Yeah. And so if someone gets your database dump, like they can't do anything with it because it's all encrypted. And that's becoming increasingly important in a world where people get their records stolen all the time. <laughs> um, so if you take into account like the liability involved and like making sure your data is actually secure, 
plus you know training training new people in this environment um it does seem to me like that that it that is cheaper and there's been some studies around that and such but um so I, I wouldn't rush to modernize. <laughs> or, yeah. And and one of the things that, that my, my team and like the, the groups that IBM are doing is is been modernizing mainframe applications in general. So we say like, oh, it mainframe's not modern, but in reality, like there's tons of tools now that make it modern. Like you can edit mainframe code with VS Code. A ton of editor, editors have syntax highlighting for COBOL and other programming languages that you use on it. Um, so we're, we're moving to a place where the development environment is modern. And even though you're using a language that's older, um, the language itself is always evolving. So, so with, with this, what, 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 with what you just said, um, and, uh, you also said, uh, earlier that ZOS is supporting go right now. So yeah. if, if you have other options for programming technologies on the mainframe, you're still saying COBOL is still a valid choice. Yeah, because it's really good at what it does, and we keep updating it to make sure it still is that way. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue. <laughs> but um, now, maybe maybe you could shed some light on this. And and if you don't know the answer, that's fine. Um, would you say that new grads or just engineers in general who are looking for COBOL positions um, are they making as much money, or are they making more than somebody who uses um, one of these other technologies like Java or Go or similar? So I'm going to throw out the standard IBM answer of it depends. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I get um, that a lot. But but COBOL programmers do well. They do yeah. well. All right. So it, yeah. it's it's not like uh, you're just throwing your life away on something that could die at any moment and you could always do Definitely better, right? Not. No, no. It's it's really great. And and the awesome thing about COBOL is it's actually not that hard to learn. Um, it's it's a very straightforward language. Yeah. Um, and but you then have to understand the environment within it, within which it lives. So it's not about learning all about learning COBOL syntax. It's also about learning about your data sense and your environment, and and the the operating system you're going to be interacting with. So it's not I wouldn't say, like COBOL itself is easy learning the environment, but that's something you might you probably do more on the job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so you mentioned ZOS and you mentioned uh, IBM's involvement with uh, just mainframes in general. Is there anything else that IBM's doing when it comes to COBOL? I'm really excited about this. All right, let's hear <laughs> um, it. So first of all, we, we put up a, uh, a COBOL po portal on um, developer.ibm.com. Um, if you have show notes, we can we can send a link. It's like developer.ibm.com slash technology slash COBOL. And there we have, we have every Friday, we have um, a webcast, um, either from a professor or from a community member or someone in, in the COBOL space. Um, last week we had a professor, um, from a university in Georgia who was doing a, a, a talk on, um, some of the internals of COBOL that people are using. So there's a webcast every Friday. Um, we're publishing articles all the time. Uh, right now there's featured a, a video by a guy on my team who played with COBOL for the first time and then just like walked you through a sample program. Wow. And it's only like, it's like six or 10 minutes long. But it, it, it like it's transformational for people who've never seen COBOL. I'm like if you want to just check it out and figure out what it's all about, just watch this video. It's short, <laughs> and you'll get a really good sense of things. Um, and then the thing I'm, I'm actually so that that's the, our portal. It links to a bunch of different resources. Um, but the thing I'm really excited about is we launched a a, a course um, in uh, collaboration with uh, American. Oh, I'm gonna get this wrong. <laughs> uh, American River College, I think. Um, and a couple familiar. of other organizations, 
um, on on COBOL. So there's an open source co course that's being released by the Open Mainframe Project now. And it's a COBOL course, which we're slowly converting into Markdown. I think when we first threw it up, it was like a PDF or something. <laughs> um, but it, it's all hosted in Git by the Open Mainframe Project. So it's a free course that's out there now that people can take. Um, we also give access to um, mainframe environments so people can actually play around with the code. Um, is this so for enterprise users only? No, this is for anyone. So, All right. So, that's... so maybe I'll jump in here and ask another question then. <laughs> yeah. Say, say, say I was interested in, um, having access, uh, to the IBM mainframe. Um, I'm not an enterprise user. For what reason would I want to do that? Just, just for learning purposes, or would I actually be able to accomplish something as a hobbyist? We have a program called Master the Mainframe. Sure. Um, and that is a contest that we run from September to December every year for students. Sure. So you have to be an enrolled student to, to handle, to do the competition. Um, and that, that gives, takes you through a series of logging into a main, you get a mainframe account, you log into it. That's like the first challenge. I screwed that up the first time. I messed up my password <laughs> and had to have it reset. So I'm like, Everything's a challenge in this, but yeah. interacting with new environments. And then and then you go through a series of like coding challenges and other things as the contest progresses. But you don't need to be a student to actually play with that because yeah. we also have a learning system that runs all year long. So Got if you it. just Google for Master the Mainframe, we can add this to the show notes too. There's a learning system that you can sign up for today and get a login to a mainframe and play around with it. So one, it's it's learning. And two... This exposes you to a machine that's very different than any server you've probably logged into before. And sort of like when, when I started playing with it, like my, I was like totally geeking out about it because I was super excited to be working with this new thing. <laughs> I'm like, I've never worked with a computer like this. I'm going to have to relearn everything. What does it give you um, just like an underscore in your terminal or something? And that's it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, a, it, you know, like end curses and Linux. Like it's, it's just like a screen of like text you, you have this 3270 terminal that's sure. what it's called and um you can run it like on you know linux or windows or whatever um and then that's how you interact with the machine and you have all these like text-based menus and the thing i did with with messing up my password is i used my arrow keys and you can yeah. use your arrow key all all along the screen so i ended up in the wrong spot on the screen <laughs> yep and then that all went wrong so don't <laughs> use your arrow keys <laughs> awesome yeah, no, I definitely want to include all of this in the show notes um, after this episode. So definitely uh, people will find huge value out of it. Uh, so now I want to ask, um, is there anything you wanted to share that I might have missed as far as a question that you that you think the audience would, would appreciate? Um, I, I think the, the, the real thing is, the, the big thing is, you know, we had this like COBOL storm of, of people blaming old code for um, uh, you know, production errors. And I, 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 the one thing I want to implore people is like, is look deeper when you see headlines of like, Oh, it's a 70 year old language or whatever, like step back and, and consider like, we don't write articles about cars calling them 130 year old technology. <laughs> yeah. So just like, you know, be, be thoughtful when you, when you see these titles fly around, like, oh, the language is old, it needs to be replaced, it needs to be modernized. And instead, think about like how technologies can stack upon each other to, to really build on their strengths. Just because something's new doesn't mean it's good. And just because something's old doesn't mean it's bad. Um, it gives us much more options to choose from, but just be like 
thinking about like, why have people been using this for 50 years? Is it because they didn't have anything else or is it because it's actually good? Makes and in sense. the case of COBOL, I think it's actually good. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So, uh, I appreciate that you took the time out of your day to be on this podcast, Liz. Um, oh, thank you and, for having me. Uh, we may have you follow up one day as well. Yeah, sounds good. I'll be happy to join you again. Liz shared a ton of great information when it came to COBOL and mainframes in general. And I, for one, learned a lot from this particular episode. If you found this episode to be useful, it would mean a lot to me if you went into Apple Podcasts or whatever network you were listening from and left it a five-star rating and then possibly said something nice about the episode or the show as a whole so that way future listeners can get an idea of what they're getting themselves into. If you have an idea for content on a future podcast episode, I want to hear about it. Go ahead and drop a comment in the blog post associated to this particular podcast episode on thepolyglotdeveloper.com or send me a message on Twitter. So I'm at nraboy on Twitter. Just shoot me a message with your idea and then I'll see if it's a good fit for the show. And that concludes episode number 38.